scripture reading this evening you can find in the gospel according to Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 through 44. As we consider preparing our hearts and minds and lives to partake of the Lord's Supper next week, God willing, we will then also be reading after scripture the first part of the Lord's Supper form. See the word of God. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, that is Jesus, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, well, master, Thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love His neighbor as Himself, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that He answered discreetly, He said to him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question. And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. David, therefore, himself calleth him Lord. Whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. And he said to them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. And Jesus said over against the treasury, and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. Many that were rich cast in much. And there was a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, Verily, I say unto you that this poor widow has cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. 
Satisfy the Word of God. We will turn now to the back of the Psalter, page 136, to read the first part of the Lord's Supper form. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, attend to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Holy Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. 23 through 29. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord, to our comfort it's above all things necessary, first, rightly to examine ourselves, and secondly, to direct it to that end for which Christ has instituted, ordained and instituted the same, namely, to his remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of these three parts. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them, to the end that he may abhor and humble himself before God, considering the, that the wrath of God against sin is so great that rather than it should go unpunished, he has punished the same in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Secondly, that everyone examine his own heart, whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God, that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own, yea, so perfectly, as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Thirdly, that everyone examine his own conscience, whether he purposes henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life and walk uprightly before him, as also whether he has laid aside unfeignedly all enmity, hatred, and envy, and thus firmly resolve henceforth to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. All those, then, were thus disposed, God will certainly receive in mercy and count them worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Therefore, we also, according to the commandment of Christ, and the Apostle Paul admonished all those who are defiled with the following sins to keep themselves from the table of the Lord and declare to them that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ. 
such as all idolaters, all those invoke deceased saints, angels, and other creatures, all those who worship images, all enchanters, diviners, charmers, and those who confide in such enchantments, all despisers of God and of His Word and of the Holy Sacraments, all blasphemers, all those who are given to raise discord, sects, and mutiny in church or state, all perjured persons, all those who are disobedient to their parents and superiors, all murderers, contentious persons, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, whoremongers, drunkards, thieves, usurers, robbers, gamesters, covetous, and all who lead offensive lives. All these, while they continue in such sins, shall abstain from this meat, which Christ has ordained only for the faithful, lest their judgment and condemnation be made the heavier. But this is not designed, dearly beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord, to deject the contrite hearts of the faithful, as if none might come to the supper of the Lord but those who are without sin. For we do not come to this supper to testify thereby that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves, but on the contrary, considering that we seek our life out of ourselves in Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that we lie in the midst of death. Therefore, notwithstanding, we feel many infirmities and miseries in ourselves, as namely that we have not perfect faith, and that we do not give ourselves to serve God with that zeal as we are bound, but have daily to strive with the weakness of our faith and the evil lust of our flesh. Yet, since we are by the grace of the Holy Spirit, sorry for these weaknesses and earnestly desirous to fight against our unbelief and to live according to all the commandments of God. Therefore, we rest assured that no sin or infirmity which still remains against our will in us can hinder us from being received of God in mercy and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly meat and drink. Let's make confession of our faith, the words of the Apostles' Creed, and, and, and say that as I read it in your mind and heart. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, he descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father, Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, I believe in Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I almost won. Children, have you ever said that? Or heard somebody else say that? Oh, I almost won. But what does it really mean? 
You did not. You did not win. You lost. You remember, children, perhaps to the history of King Agrippa, who heard Paul preach and how he responded. You almost persuaded me to become a Christian. Almost saved, but altogether lost, forever lost, made it to heaven's gate, but turned away. You know the history from Matthew 7, where they pleaded, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in thy name, cast out many demons. In other words, went to church all my life, read my Bible, prayed, was baptized, made confession of faith, partook of the Lord's Supper. And then to hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity, or in another place, you cursed into everlasting fire. Too late then to be saved, but not now. This still is the day of salvation. Not too late for us today. And as we then prepare for the Lord's Supper, let's examine our hearts and lives. If indeed we do follow Jesus, as we heard this morning, I want to consider with God's help, this from the passage we read, and I just read now verse 34, Mark 12, 34. When Jesus saw that he, that is the scribe, answered discreetly, he said to him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. Specifically, those words, Thou art not far. Not far from the kingdom And I put a question mark and an exclamation mark for you to determine which of the two is true. The first commandment, and then we will see the ultimate question, and then the plain example. The first commandment, a first thought. We read in verse 28, and one of the scribes came in, having heard them, Reasoning, Jesus and the the scribes and the Pharisees, reasoning together and perceiving he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Do you realize that it was the fourth question they came to ask him in one day? The first one, the end of chapter 11. Who gave the authority to do all these things? The second question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Third question, this woman had seven husbands at the resurrection. Whose whose wife will she be? All of them to tempt Jesus. This is the fourth question. What is the first commandment of all? A scribe, a teacher of the law, a lawyer, called in Matthew 22, where you find the, the, the same history. Man seems sincere. It doesn't seem like he came to tempt Jesus. He perceived that 
Jesus had answered the other questions well. And he says, what is the first or the greatest or the most important commandment of all? That's interesting. We have to understand that he was not just talking about the Ten Commandments here. He was talking about the most detailed list that the Pharisees and the scribes had put together over the years. A long list of do's and don'ts called the mitzvot. M-I-T-Z-V-O-T. Mitzvot. Means law, commandment. Actually, it's the plural form. A list of, listen to this, 613 commandments. They broke the Old Testament Torah down into 613 do's and don'ts. 248 positives, do's. 365 negatives, don'ts. So Jesus is asked by the scribe, so, so which one is, on, is the top of the list? See, the rabbis and, and the Pharisees, they could debate on this for hours. So now, which one would Jesus declare to be first of all? Well, Jesus gives an answer. And Jesus answered him, verse 29, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. So what Jesus is doing, he not only gives a beautiful answer, but also he sets a perfect example for all of us. He could have easily given them his own mind. He could have given a spontaneous answer, but he quotes Scripture. That's so good to do that when people ask us questions. Thus of the Lord. And children, what Jesus was quoting there, Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5, every Jewish child had to memorize They called it in the Hebrew, Shema Yisrael, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And the heart, with all thy heart, that's that's the fountain of who you are, the innermost being of who we really are, the fountain from which all our actions, our thoughts, our words flow. The soul is, is with all our soul, with all our emotions, all our affections, all our feelings. Our mind is with our understanding. The might, all our might, with all our strength, all the energy we have. In other words, love the Lord your God with all, four times all, repeated all, that you are and all that you have. So it's not, in the first place, a list of do's and don'ts. But why and how we must do these commandments, obey these commandments, out of love. It's not just actions. 
but devotion and adoration when it pertains to the Lord. Worship Him. Not a checklist of do's and don'ts. As somebody said, we're not just going through the motions, but we also have to go through the emotions. Our whole essence, our whole being must be involved. Just like Paul states in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I have not charity or love, I am nothing without love. Worship God, fellowship with Him, and with each other in Christ. Beautifully pictured, of course, in in the Lord's Supper. We worship the Lord, not the bread and the wine, but we have to lift up our hearts to Him who is in the heavens, at the right hand of the Father, to worship Him and fellowship with Him and with each other. That's why it's so important that we indeed examine ourselves if there is any unconfessed particular sin we're clinging to and repent of it and go to the Lord for the first time or afresh and also to each other if there is any need for that. So first, love God above all. Jesus says this is the first commandment. And then he goes on in 31, and the second is like... Namely, this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. So the second is like or similar. In other words, it's also love. The key of both is love. Love for God. And really what Jesus is doing without stating it as such, but he's also quoting again in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, verse 18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I'm the Lord. You know, you notice here too that forgiving one another is connected intimately to loving one another. The one cannot be without the other. Love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord, it says in Leviticus 18, 19 verse 18. So as, as he, the Lord, pours his love into us, we are called to love him in return, but also overflow that love to one another. That's how we show that we truly love God by loving others. As we love ourselves, or better said, as we already love ourselves. Matthew seven twelve. Jesus said, All things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Matthew twenty. Verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament hangs on this. It's not something new. Of course, the only new thing was that for the first time, people could actually see it in action when they saw Jesus. Jesus. 
In Mark, Jesus says, there is no other commandment greater than these. I must confess to you, I, I missed it many, many times, many years. I just realized that it said, there's no other commandment singular than these two. So is it one or is it two? And the answer is yes, it's both. Because the one is intimately connected to the other. Paul says in Galatians 5 or 14, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I always was wondering about that. How can it be one word? But it's the evidence of the greater love for God and from God. It's evidenced by that. You say, you know, when John writes, if you say you love God and you hate your neighbor, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. It's interesting that the mitzvot, you can look it up, the first commandment of the mitzvot, the highest that they have put, is know there is a God. The second is have no other gods. And it follows quite closely the Ten Commandments, of course. Third, know that God is one. And fourth, love God above all. So the loving God above all is the fourth on their list. Jesus puts it to the very top. It's interesting also to note that loving your neighbor as yourself is the 13th on the list. And actually, when you look it up, it actually doesn't say love your neighbor. Even though every one of these commandments is supplied with an Old Testament text to support it. So they, they went to the whole Old Testament scriptures and they knew of every one of these commandments they found a text. But actually it says there in the 13th one, love other Jews. And that really made me think about why Jesus had to say, your neighbor is not just fellow Jews, but also Gentiles, even your enemies. They made the 13th commandment, love other Jews. It gives a little bit of window into their thinking. They think of the scribe, isn't it? Anyway, the scribe is impressed and repeats what Jesus says in verses 32 through 33. Almost the same words. And the scribe said to him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God. Of course, that's the number one. There is none other but he. And to love him with all understanding, soul, strength, and to love his neighbors himself. And then he adds, is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. interesting, he seems to understand. It's more than whole burnt offerings, than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Maybe you recall what we heard this morning too, what Samuel said to Saul. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Or Hosea 6.6, as we heard also this morning, I desired mercy and not sacrifice. The word mercy there, chesed, is loving kindness. I want love more than just actions, even more than just coming to church and worship in an outward sense. 
repeated also, isn't it, by John in 1 John 3.18, my little children, he says, and I, I love that, the way quite often these, these statements are introduced, my little children, let's not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Right actions, yes, but also the right motives. Not just dutifully partake of the Lord's Supper, but thankfully celebrating it. It's a feast for sinners whose only but sufficient hope is in the Lord Jesus. His perfect love life. He obeyed this commandment perfectly. Not just a list of do's and don'ts. And then he paid the price for our sins. But then Jesus says in 34, when Jesus saw that he, that is that scribe, answered discreetly, wisely, he said to him, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that durst ask him any question, no fifth question. This was it. Clearly shocking. It must have shocked the people. What? Describe? Not in the kingdom? You can just imagine the people, if he is not in, how can we? They all looked up against them, and that's how they wanted it, of course. Not far. In other words, you're close, but not yet in. Just like Nicodemus in John 3. It's a similar situation, isn't it? Jesus said, you must be born again. Unless you're born again. You cannot see the kingdom of God. And then that's in verse 3. And in verse 5, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. All close. Very close. Just like you and I all are at this moment, all of us are very close. But are you in? Just like the Jews, be very close, hearing the word of God. Even right now, we are hearing, but are you listening? Sometimes children say, I hear you, mom. But then you say, Yeah, I realize, but are you listening? Are you in the kingdom of God already? Are you not far from it? Still outside and lost. Now, I'm not sure if this scribe ever entered, but that's immaterial to us. The question is, did you? And are you sure? Examine yourself. This week, as you prepare for the Lord's Supper, be right about it. Regardless whether you partake of it or not. Self-examination is for every one of us. We don't even know if we'll make tomorrow. Are you ready? 
You see, wrong partaking is sinful. Not partaking is sinful too. It's not an option. There's no option. There's no third option. Jesus commands this do in remembrance of me. And unbelief is not an excuse. When is one sin an excuse for another sin? We have no right to unbelief. Sinful rebellion and disobedience. If we partake in the wrong way, hearing the word preached this morning and again this evening, whether we partake wrongfully or whether we not partake, we're called to partake and to partake rightly. And of course, children and teenagers uh, in our midst, you cannot yet come to the Lord's Supper. But you too can and must come to the Lord Jesus. He called you this morning, follow me. And he calls you again tonight. And the question is, do you? Love God above all and your neighbor as yourself. But then you wonder perhaps, how, how do we do that? Then it brings us to a second point. The ultimate question. Verse 35, we read Jesus answered, when nobody dared to say anything, Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? And here it would be very helpful if you would compare it with Matthew 22, where the same history is recorded. Because there the Lord Jesus first asks another question. This is a follow-up question. And the question that Jesus asked in Matthew 22, verse 42, is what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And then they say to him, the son of David. They knew the answer. So in order to answer the question, are you really in the kingdom of God, we first must ask another question, what think ye of Christ? What do you really believe about him? Do you really believe what you profess to believe? See, that's the ultimate question. Not are you baptized, made confession of faith, Read your Bible, pray all good things. Very good things. But Jesus commands, this do in remembrance of me. As we heard this morning, it's not an option. Are you ready? Are you willing? Are you able? It doesn't say that. This do in remembrance of me. Do not remember what you've done. Yes, it's good to remember. Confess your sins. But it's not the basis upon which you partake of the Lord's Supper. It's not about what we have done or not done, but what He has done. So that with whatever weak, mustard-sized faith we put our trust in Him, He is the object. He will do it. What He said. 
What think of Christ? The answer to that question will make all the difference between being already saved and almost saved. Then Jesus adds in Matthew 22, whose son is he? And then the Pharisees answered, the son of David. And they knew that Christ or the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. But Jesus wants them and us to know more than just that. More to know about who this Christ, this Messiah is, and why he has come. You can actually say that, that Jesus is turning the tables on them. He says, now, okay, you asked me four questions. I've got a question for you. Now it's time for me to ask you a question. And the answer to my question is the key to the answers to the questions you have. So yes, you're right. The Christ is the son of David. But then Jesus goes on to say, in verse 36, he confirms and he again quotes scripture from Psalm 110, which he sang earlier. For David himself said, by the Holy Ghost, inspired, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. Psalm 110. If you read Psalm 110, it is indeed David speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but David is saying what he heard. He heard Jawah, the Lord, speaking to his Adonai. The Lord said to my Lord, David said, I heard that. The Lord said that to my Lord. And I overheard that conversation, if I may put it reverently like that. The Lord said to my Lord, David's Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, I'll make all thy enemies thy footstool. I'll subject them all to you, the Father, to the Son. So David calls the Messiah's Lord. And then Jesus says, how can he be at the same time his son? 37. That's, why they, but that's how Jesus now comes to the question. 37. David, therefore himself, calls him Lord. My Lord, right? My Adonai. Whence he then is his son. And the common people heard him gladly. No more questions. No more answers. They were silenced. And just these words, I love it. The common people heard him gladly. Remember children? My children, little children, common people. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they secretly enjoyed it that Jesus put the Pharisee in their place. You know, it seemed clear to these uneducated, these common people, not only what Jesus said about the Messiah, but also that he applied it all to himself. He is both the son of David, born of the Virgin Mary, as well as the Lord and Savior of David and of every other single believer. The disciples knew who Jesus was. A couple chapters before that, in Mark 8, and you read also Matthew 16, where Jesus, an interesting way that he asks it, notice it, in Matthew 26, he says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
the disciples of all, or John the Baptist, or uh, maybe another one, maybe Elijah, or one of the other prophets. But then Jesus pricks further. Say, okay, what? I don't want to hear what other people do. What do you think? Whom say ye that I am? And then Peter answers and said, Thou art the Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a confession. So they knew, the disciples knew, they acknowledged that Jesus was and is the Christ. That's really the ultimate answer to the ultimate question, isn't it? Because he is the only way to the Father. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. No other name given under heaven whereby man must be saved. The name of the God-man, Christ Jesus. What think ye of Christ? What do you think of the Christ? Really? Who is he? Who is he to you? I'm sure you all profess to believe that. That he is the one and only mediator, the only savior, the only name. But by men can and must be saved. But are you? That's the question. Comes to all of us at this time. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man who lived and died, arose for sinners to be saved. Who is He to you, for you? Personally, really, are you trusting him and trusting yourself to him as your one and only hope? Submitting to him, serving him as your Lord. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And of course, still you know that nobody is being washed in blood to be saved. That never could save anyone. That's a beautiful picture, though. The blood of the Lamb. Just like the Lord Jesus made it very plain that we're not saved by partaking of the Lord's Supper, by eating bread and drinking wine. Couldn't and didn't actually save anyone. But it prophesied and pictured the Lord Jesus Christ as he was introduced by John the Baptist in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Only one way whereby sin can be removed from our lives is through Him. No merely human religious law-keeping could save anyone. But Jesus could and He did. No ceremonial law-keeping. All these rivers of blood without faith did not please God. All the moral law-keeping, the Ten Commandments, imperfect, impossible. Only Jesus. 
even the 613 commandments meticulously kept, got this man to be just not far from the kingdom of God. And Jesus did. He kept it. Not the 613, but he kept the very essence of the law, loving God above all and his neighbor as himself. He not only obeyed perfect loving obedience and paid the price, a perfect loving sacrifice, but also applies it. As we heard this morning, he not only commands this, but he provides everything he commands. There's no excuse whatsoever. Perfect salvation for sinners. He applies it to sinners even today. He is the ultimate answer to this ultimate question. Is he that to you? If not, repent. Confess it as sin before God, even right now in your mind and in your heart. And put your trust in the blood that was shed in the Lord Jesus. Confess Him as the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you do, then indeed rest in His Word. Obey His loving commandment. Not just an invitation, but a loving commandment. Next week, when He says, This do in remembrance of Me. And then then follow Him. To become more like Him. To imitate Him. To be discipled by Him. And then to be an example of this love to each other and to those around us in this world. That brings us to our third point, the plain example. A solemn truth that we just sang together, solemn reality. Not far from the kingdom or not far from the kingdom, First commandment, the ultimate question and the answer, but then also third, the plain example. It is striking, isn't it, how religion, by most if not all religions, is something of the intelligent. It's presented as if it's only for the educated for professionals, for adults, for the experts, for the Pharisees in Jesus' days, and again for the clergy in the Roman Catholic days. It's not for nothing that I emphasize my little children and the common people who heard Jesus gladly. They were the common people, the uneducated, and the children as well. Jesus says in Mark 10, just a few chapters before this, Verily, and again with an oath, Verily I say to you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. 
So if you've never been humbled to become like a little child, crying for mercy, trusting in the Lord unreservedly, you're not far, but not yet in the kingdom. In other words, religious and sincere adults, like, like these learned Pharisees, and like this scribe, not far. It means you're not yet in. If that's your expectation, if that's your foundation, is that where you build your religious house on? That's sand, not the rock. Lost. Unless you repent of that. Unless you repent not only of the sins of commission, but the sin of omission. And the sin of omission, the greatest one, is is unbelief. Not repenting. This comes to all of us. What do we build on? What do we hold before us in our minds and hearts expecting to be entering into the kingdom of God? God says, repent. Be humbled. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a child, children, you repent and believe as a child because that's what you are. And we adults are to repent like a child. Like a child. Young adults. Older ones. To humble ourselves before God and before each other. No, not yes, but, but yes, Lord. Complete surrender. I find this um, again and again. The beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. The child can be a partaker. Children, you cannot yet be at the Lord's table, but you can be a partaker of the Lord Jesus. All you and I need to do is to come to the Lord and say these most difficult words in the English language I am sorry to God and to each other when necessary. Why is it so hard to say, I'm sorry? Also to each other. And then, please forgive me. And then to hear Jesus say, yes, I will. Because that's what he does. I trust. I believe. Lord, help thou my unbelief. It's so assaulted within me at times. But there's nowhere else to turn, nowhere else to deal with my sins but to him. But then Jesus gives a solemn, a devastating warning about these so-called law keepers. And that can be subtle, dear congregation. Maybe we've not done as bad as they, but in a subtle way, been similar When Jesus said, after he said, after we read it, the common people heard him gladly, he said unto them in his doctrine, he was teaching, he was warning the people, beware of the scribes. 
wonder what that one scribe was thinking as, as he stood there undoubtedly too still. Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. Solemn word. Beware. He says, stay away from these scribes. They're show-offs. It's all about themselves. They want attention. They want the honor. They want the best seat in the synagogue and the best seat at feasts. And what's even worse, they devour widows' houses. They mistreat widows to enrich themselves. They're lovers of self instead of lovers of God and their neighbor. And the exact opposite as God commanded to deal with widows and orphans among the weakest among the people, the most needy. The most helpless. Meanwhile, pretending to make long prayers. Verse 40, to appear religious. But Jesus makes it very, they shall receive greater damnation. Greater damnation than what? Than who? All the other people, the common people. Who are unlearned. Greater damnation than all the other people, the Gentiles, that have never even heard the word of God. So those that think they keep the law well, they think well of themselves, they look in the mirror as we heard this morning, and think they're looking pretty good. Cancer is already at work in them. Greater damnation than all these common people. In Matthew 23, following the same history, Jesus pronounces eightfold woe upon them. Woe to you. Woe to you. Eight times. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You know what the word hypocrite really was in the, in the ancient Roman uh, language? A hypocrite is really an actor. People that acted on stage were called hypocrites. That was the word. That's the orig- origin of that word. Jesus said, you're actors. You're pretending. It's all received greater damnation. Awful things will come to you unless you repent and humble yourself and believe in me. So simple and yet so hard. But then the Lord Jesus turns from the ones who devour widows' houses, who take from widows, to a widow who gives. A widow who puts just a few tiny coins in the temple collection chest. Jesus says in 41 and 42, Jesus sat over against the treasury. I could just imagine him sitting there and speaking and then just seeing this widow. Of course, he knew already ahead of time. Beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. Maybe it was a show of display. 
And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which makes a farthing. So you have to understand that in the temple courts were collection chests. They were made of metal, and they were trumpet-shaped. They had a narrow top and a big round bottom, so that when you threw money in, it made a sound. You could hear that. Thirteen of these chests were there. So if you would throw in a big gold coin or a big silver coin, people could hear that. But then Jesus sees this poor widow throwing two mites, small copper coins. Two mites was the approximate wage of a common laborer for one hour's work. One mite half an hour. Very small gift. Made only a very tinny sound, if, if at all. Nobody could hear that. And it was cast in. But then Jesus says in 43 and 44, and just listen, it's almost like Jesus is excited to draw their attention to her. 43, and he, Jesus, called unto him his disciples, says, come, as it were, and says to them, verily, an oath, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance. But she of her want, of her poverty, did cast in all that she had, even all her living. This woman puts in more than all the others because she cast in all her living. What a contrast. This is not only a perfect example, but a perfect contrast between who is almost not far from the kingdom and one who is in the kingdom. What a striking contrast. But also what a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus himself, isn't it? Who gave all that he had and who still gives all who he is to those who come to him. He will in no wise cast out. She put in way more than was required as a tithe. If she called in, even if she would have put in one mite, it would have been 50% of what she had. And it was required to put in only one-tenth of your income, not of your wealth. And not meant to be noticed at all. It was truly a love offering. Not meant to be noticed if Jesus had not drawn attention to it. She did not do it to impress people. No pretense. No show-off like with the others. But simply that she wanted to give to the service of God. It was clearly an expression of devoted love. A giving woman. Loving woman. Now, we know that God doesn't need our money. He could do it without. Yet, it's clear that he wants to use it from Scripture. And indeed, yes, large gifts are needed. 
But small gifts can make a big difference. I'll give you an example. Perhaps you know about these Gideon Bibles. They cost $5 to have one printed and to send them anywhere in the world. So if you are a young person, you make $15 an hour, one hour's worth, three Bibles. If you make six or $30 an hour, just imagine, six Bibles, one hour's worth of giving. Just imagine what one Bible can be for one person, for one family, for one neighborhood. Small gift. Not only is noticed by God, but can also be making a big difference for entire families, for neighborhoods. So it's not just about what we give, but why we give and how we give. That's Paul's point too, isn't it? In Second Corinthians 9 verse 7, every man, according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, complaining, or of necessity, forced. For God loves a cheerful giver. So without realizing, the Lord Jesus, without this poor widow realizing, she was used as an example, a cheerful giver, an expression of love, a stark contrast between one who takes from widows and one who a widow who gives. Which one do you represent? Which one, if people would follow you along, would, would, would recognize you to be? Like this scribe or like this widow? You see, one not far from the kingdom of God and one who's in. As I said, we're all not far from the kingdom of God. We're all near. We hear the word. We hear God speaking to us, even right now. We're commanded to keep God's law. To love God above all and our neighbors ourselves. And we know that's impossible. It's out of our reach. But what's impossible with man is possible, yea, certain with God. But only by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. This, this, this ruler, this, this clergyman, this rich young man, as he, in another Story you read about a rich young man who actually is a very poor man, and this poor widow actually is rich. She has a far greater wealth, which she is enjoying right now forever. I don't know what happened to the to that uh, scribe, but where will you go? Plain example, but a powerful example. What it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. Are you saved? Being saved. And are you sure? On what ground is it trusting in Jesus as the Christ and treasuring Him? Not just trusting, but treasuring Him. 
even as believers, we can take it so for granted. Oh, that the Lord would revive us to not only put our trust in Him, to be forgiven, but also to become more and more like unto Him. So if you heard this morning, to follow Him. Is it your desire to follow and imitate the Lord Jesus? To love and to give, not because you have to, but because you want to. That's enough. Amen. Gracious God, we acknowledge thee for thy amazing goodness toward us. Though we have sinned it all away and continue to do so, left to ourselves. Grant, Lord, that we would repent for the first time or afresh and put our trust in the Lord Jesus. We may be like Matthew, who immediately left it all behind and followed Jesus. Or like this widow, to live the life of faith. To confess and to plead, Lord, forgive us our sins. And to believe that Jesus says, I forgive you. For my name's sake, amen.